Hi, this is the K. Ray Reads to You podcast, and I am K. Ray. Oh, and you can visit me at my blog if you want to, www.kray.org. Today I'm reading Chapter 11 of The Four-Story Mistake by Elizabeth Enright. Chapter 11 is called Addition and Subtraction. And at last it was really spring. Flowers everywhere. The woods were carpeted with them. Bloodroot, wrapped in its cloak like an Indian princess, Trillium, Jack in the Pulpit, Dutchman's Breeches, Hepatica, blooming out of a little fur mitten, and Dogtooth Violet. Down near the creek there were real violets by the hundred, by the thousand, starring in their heart-shaped leaves. Even the trees were full of flowers, apple blossom and snowy pear and cherry. Of two huge lopsided bushes near the house, one suddenly burst into a rash of orange rosettes, and the other turned into a shower of pink fringe almost overnight. Each day the children woke early and couldn't bear not to get up. The birds made such a racket, such a warbling and calling and whistling and rustling in the trees and vines, and the smell that drifted in through the open windows was so wildly exciting, a fragrance so new, never breathed before, so sweet and mysterious and inviting, that one couldn't stay indoors, much less in bed. Cuffy was constantly having to put her head out the window to tell people to come in, and put on some bedroom slippers at least. On Saturdays and Sundays life was pleasantly disorganized. Nobody had meals in the house. They wandered about, eating sandwiches in the woods, in the orchard, beside the brook, anywhere. The brook was a never-failing source of delight. Rush invented a sport called sure-footing, which consisted of leaping with speed, agility, and daring from boulder to half-submerged boulder. As a result, there was always a pair of sneakers out drying on somebody's window-sill at the four-story mistake, and there were frequently shorts, shirts, and dresses on the clothesline as well. Usually Randy's shorts and dresses. She fell in oftenest. Rush and Willie started an ambitious victory garden, and Mona and Cuffy and Randy took care of the flower garden. Oliver veered between one and the other as his fancy took him, and sometimes, quite often, he just forgot about them both. The world seemed to expand with spring. It was larger, newer. The woods became thick and deep, and familiar vistas were hidden, made secret by thousands and thousands of opening leaves. Grass rose up tall and soft on the fields like fur on the back of a cat. Everything had to be explored all over again, for suddenly all had been created anew. Many interesting things happened to the Melendies that spring. Many additions were made to the household. For one thing, another dog came to live with them. On a sunny day in late April, a ragged, jet-black mongrel appeared from nowhere and never left again. Nobody had ever seen or heard of the dog before. He simply materialized, appeared, and became their devoted companion from then onward. They called him John Doe, Johnny for short, and he and Isaac were a happy pair, hunting for the same rabbits, collecting similar burrs and ticks, and at night lying side by side, paws twitching, noses quivering, as apparently they dreamed the same dreams. They got a goat, too. Her name was Persephone, and they called her Phony for short. She was a snow-white nanny-goat with long, wicked yellow eyes that belied her gentle, almost sentimental nature. Mona and Randy learned how to milk her, and felt like Heidi every time they drank the chalk-white milk. Phony was a darling, 
they all loved her, even though she did eat up half the paper salvage one day, and a part of the metal salvage the next. Oliver and Rush collected snakes. It was no trick at all to catch them now, for the snakes were still drowsy and slow from their long winter sleep, and lay idly among the old leaves in the woods. They had two handsome king snakes, named King Cole and King Kong, and a black one called Licorice. Licorice was Oliver's favourite, and accompanied him about the place wrapped around his arm or his middle, to Cuffy's horror and disgust. "'Not in the house, you don't!' cried Cuffy. "'Never in the house. One alligator is all the reptiles we can handle in the house. And by the way, Willie, isn't it time you brought Krusty's tank outdoors? It's warm enough now.' So Krusty, who had grown fat on a diet of canned fish, chopped bones, and hamburger, was brought outdoors to lie in his own private swimming-bath on the back lawn. The birds came to look at him curiously, and he looked back at them still as a log, smiling disarmingly, and daring them to come closer. The newest and one of the best additions to their family arrived late in May. One Sunday afternoon, tiring of his typewriter, father went to the kitchen and opened the ice-box door. There he saw part of a leg of lamb, and thought to himself, "'Cold lamb sandwiches with horseradish!' Then he closed the door and thought, "'Why not a picnic?' So that is how it happened. In less than an hour they had all, including Isaac and John Doe, piled into the motor. It was a heavenly day. The leaves burned with that pure green light that is seen only in spring, and there were daisies and buttercups all along the roadside. "'Never plan a picnic,' father said. "'Plan a dinner, yes, or a house, or a budget, or an appointment with the dentist, but never, never plan a picnic.' They all agreed with him. It was so pleasant to find themselves setting out with sandwiches made of this and that, to a destination which might be here or there. "'We may find an oasis with coconut palms, or a snow-capped peak,' "'Or a crater lake,' suggested Father. "'We'll stop at the first place that takes our eye.' "'But Fate, who was hovering by and cackling maliciously, "'chose to strike then and there on a back road three miles from home. "'The motor suddenly lurched, stumbled, and waddled a short distance "'before Willie stopped it. "'Tire?' said Father. "'Tire,' replied Willie. "'Where's the spare?' "'That was the spare,' said Willie sorrowfully. "'It was a bitter blow, now, when tires were as hard to get as crowns of gold. "'Farewell to the oasis of palms,' sighed Father, "'and farewell to the snow-capped peak. "'I guess we'll have to eat our supper over in that cow-pasture, after all.' "'But it tasted just as good in the cow-pasture. "'And besides, there was a fine brook there, all lined with watercress, "'which was a pleasant surprise.' Cuffy's picnics were very complete affairs, because along with the sandwiches and cookie-box there was always a box, a box of band-aids, and cheek by jowl with the bottle of horseradish, there were always the bottles of citronella and iodine. "'For a new taste sensation, try a cold lamb sandwich with citronella,' father said, or a dash of iodine is very interesting with peanut-butter.' At six o'clock they trudged homewards along the dusty road. Sometimes the dogs were running far ahead of them, and sometimes they were dawdling far behind, sniffing at hedges, but they hardly ever stayed beside them. 
Cuffy puffed along majestically, carrying Cress done up in a handkerchief. Father was walking with a tall stick, like Tannhäuser, and talking to Willie in a low voice. Whenever anyone came near, he waved the stick at them, and told them to beat it. Between Rush and Mona the empty picnic basket knocked from side to side, and Oliver and Randy skipped, ran, sidled, hopped, climbed fences, balanced on rails, but never merely walked. Far behind them the motor leaned to one side, old, tired, and alone. After that the Melanies rode to school on their bicycles, and Willie, to the astonishment and intense joy of the children, the village of Carthage, and in fact the entire county, refurbished the giant-wheeled antique from Oliver's cellar-room, and on it creaked wobblingly about the countryside, like a mechanized Ichabod crane. But the tenth day after the disablement of the motor the children returned from school to find Father and Willie out in front of the house waiting for them. "'Hello, kids,' called Father, and there was a certain jubilant quality in his voice. "'We've got a surprise for you.' "'A surprise? Where is it?' cried Oliver, leaping from his bike. "'In the stable,' said Father, as they followed him along at a brisk clip. "'Could it be something alive?' Looking in, they saw the motor propped up on a jack for the duration. And beside the motor there was an old-fashioned surrey with a fringed roof, and in the first stall there was a horse. "'A horse!' "'Now the stable is really a stable,' said Oliver, in the quiet voice of great happiness. "'And it's a dapple grey,' cried Mona, "'my favourite colour of horse.' Already Randy was reaching up to pat the silky, dewy muzzle, and Rush had climbed the wooden wall in order to get a better view. "'Where did you ever get it, father?' "'Up the valley from a farmer named Peterson. "'What's the horse's name?' "'Lorna Doon, she's a mare. "'And some day can she have a colt?' "'There goes Oliver living in the future again,' said Father, laughing. "'Maybe she'll have a colt some day, and maybe she won't. "'But what's the matter with her as she is?' "'There was nothing the matter with her. "'Willie showed Rush how to harness her to the Surrey, and they all took a ride. "'The fringes waved festively, and Willie drove as though he had been a coachman all his life.' "'It's so much better than the motor,' Randy said, "'because all you could smell in the motor was gas fumes and old imitation leather. "'This way you get the benefit of the air and the flowers and grass, "'with a nice smell of horse added.' "'Now we have eight animals,' mused Oliver, taking inventory. "'A horse, a goat, two dogs, three snakes, and an alligator. "'But don't you think we ought to have a cow and a pig and some chickens, father?' "'Yes, now that you mention it, I do, and a kiwi bird, and a laughing hyena, and a three-toed sloth.' "'Do you really mean it?' Oliver's face was a blaze of hope. "'And next winter will the horse pull us to school in a sleigh?' Early in June they had the first thunderstorm. It came after a hot, satisfactory day that had included a ride in the Surrey and a picnic supper. It came also, as storms so often do, in the middle of the night. In the eastern sky a distant growling had been going on for some time, but everybody in the four-story mistake was fast asleep. They knew nothing about it until it arrived full force, with the thunder booming and splitting, the rain beating down in steady hammers, and the lightning coming and going as swiftly and frequently as the flickering of a snake's tongue. 
"'Great day!' cried Cuffy, springing out of bed and reaching for her kimono with one hand and the light-switch with the other. But the lights were out again, of course, and she had to go padding about with a candle, closing windows and wiping up puddles. Father got up, too, and after a while the whole family, except Oliver, who slept through it, was twinkling about the house with flashlights. "'Ouch!' Randy would exclaim every time there was a particularly deafening crash. Then she would smile unconvincingly and say, "'I think I'm getting so I kind of like thunderstorms.' But nobody was fooled. Rush really did like them, and this was a good one. He stood looking out the window. During the frequent flashes he could see wildly tossing trees frozen for an instant in uncanny light. He could see the white blank puddles staring back at the sky, and torn leaves driven through the air, and the iron deer bravely indifferent to it all. One standing proud and imperious, staring into space, the other grazing forever with a meek and downward neck. "'Get back to bed now, get back to bed,' commanded Cuffy. "'My lands, my peonies will be beaten to a pulp after this, I'm afraid. All right, Randy, you can come and sleep in my room if you want to. Only remember, no talking.' It rained so hard that night that the brook again swelled its boundaries, and, as Cuffy had predicted, the peonies were beaten down, and completed their blooming in a supine position on the grass. It rained so hard that poor, forgotten Krusty's tank filled up to the brim, and overflowed, and Krusty, seeing his chance, swam up to the edge, and overflowed with it. Flapping his tail, and stretching his short, ugly legs, the alligator savoured freedom, and took his bearings. Ah, water! The smell of water! Not rain-water, not tank-water, but live-water, going somewhere. Slowly, clumsily, but with something like a sense of adventure quickening his thick blood, Krusty crawled toward the brook, grinning from ear to ear. At breakfast the next day Willie burst into the dining-room. "'Say, Mr. Melendy, that alligator, he's gone, got out, beat it. I can't find him nowheres. Must have scrammed last night when the rain filled up his tank.' "'Gone!' cried Oliver and Rush and Randy, in voices of consternation. "'Gone!' cried Father and Mona, in blank surprise. But Cuffy said, "'You mean he's honestly gone?' And on her face there was unmistakable relief. "'It's going to be very hard for me to believe that Mrs. Cuthbert Stanley didn't have something to do with this. Did you, Cuffy?' said Father." They all turned to look at Cuffy, who, stainless of guilt though she was, blushed right up to the roots of her white hair. They never saw Krusty again. They searched, advertised, warned the farmers in the valley, but never a trace of Krusty did they find. Two years later, Father, returning from a lecture in Philadelphia, brought them a small clipping from a newspaper which was headed, "'Seeing Things?' Natives of Humboldt Quarter, Pennsylvania, have recently reported the presence of a live alligator in Humboldt Creek. Five people claim to have seen it, the last being Herman C. Rolstoner, local butcher, who says he saw it Sunday while fishing. Rolstoner took the pledge on Monday. Authorities claim it extremely unlikely that an alligator of the size reported, about two and a half feet, could survive in such northerly waters." "'Do you suppose it could be crusty?' cried Randy. "'Could be,' Rush said. "'The authorities probably never saw an alligator with such a determined character.' 
and that's the end of chapter 11. See you next time.